0: Hey, I'm going to invite Will Nawat, and he's going to come up. He reached out to me this week, and God had just put something on his heart, so I asked for him to, to come and share. So give Will a warm City life welcome. Come on as he
1: comes. How's it going, guys? How y'all doing? Good. Um, I was reflecting and spending some time with the Lord uh, earlier this week, and due to some stuff that was going on in my life, um, he gave me a word, and he convicted me to share it with you guys. Um, and he just was very clear about it. And he said, grab your phone and write this down. So I did. Um, It says, sometimes in the deepest wounds, there has to be pain to ensure that the healing is complete. Doctors do this to ensure that the nervous system is healed correctly so that the patient doesn't lose any coordination or feeling. Sometimes our hurt runs so deep that God allows a final stab to occur that ensures you are healed fully within his grace to ensure that your healing is complete and you have not lost the sensation of your emotions, that your heart has not become hard. I just wanted to share that with you guys and I hope that somebody hears that and it means something to you. Yeah, so, it's good, Will. Thank you.
0: It's good, thank you. Take that.
1: Come on, that's good, isn't
0: it? will works with Teen Challenge right here in Newport News it's an amazing ministry and we appreciate the work that you're doing there and so i just i don't want to move past that too quickly and when he sent that this week I thought you know that's going to be for somebody here tonight and, and there's times in our service where uh, there's an opportunity for you to respond and it takes a little bit of courage and this is going to be one of those so I just want to encourage you that if, if you're one of those people that you've just you've, you've been through a season of life where there's been some hurt in your life and, 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 and it feels like and you've been asking the question God why is there still that twinge of pain that's there that I'm just going to invite you to stand because I just want to pray over you, and we're just going to just linger for a moment, even if it's just one person. We just want you to stand, just to encourage you, because it, oftentimes, as, as Will said, that that little poke by God to, to that feels hurtful, it's not because the wound is still there. It's because of what Will said. is because he doesn't want your heart to lose its tenderness. You, you with me? We, even coming out of hurt, he still wants us to be able to feel. And so if there's some people standing up, I see some people over here, just stand up around them and just put a hand on their shoulder. I see Takara standing up back there. Come on, somebody just popped up there in the middle. Come on, just make your way over there. Make your way. Father, I just lift up every person that stood up tonight. Father, I thank you for their courage. I thank you for will coming forward and sharing that. God, you you knew that there was going to be somebody here tonight who needed to understand why their heart still feels tender. Not because the wound is still there, not because you haven't healed. Not because there's unforgiveness, Father. Just even having a sense now as we pray that somebody's been asking that question, doubting themselves, wondering if there's unforgiveness in their heart, and that's why they still feel that twinge of pain. Father, we thank you that even now as we pray, that you're just confirming and affirming in them that you want their heart to be tender, even though they've been wounded, as they move forward into their future. That you want their heart to be able to trust again. That you want their heart to To be able to feel deeply again, and that their past is not going to determine their tomorrows, that what they've experienced yesterday is not going to be what directs their future, that there are relationships, God, there's trust again, and there's depth of meaning in friendship. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Come on, it's good. (laughs) We had a great time at the wedding this weekend. A lot of their family is here visiting, so we just say welcome to you, uh, to Virginia while you're here. I was hanging out with some of the groomsmen while we were waiting for our pictures to be taken, and I reached out and gave someone a fist bump, and, and, uh, and one of the groomsmen said, that's a really nice watch you're wearing, Pastor Fred. I said, you know, well, thank you. And then they started talking about me like I wasn't there. Right, you ever been in a situation like that? They li- I'm standing right there, and they literally, these three groomsmen, Jamal, Marcus, and Travis, <laughs> turned to each other, right, and said, I-, I feel like P. Fred, he's got like accidental swag. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what that is, and I don't think it's good. <laughs> accidental swag, I didn't even know that was a thing, but apparently I have that. My dad growing up had a stand all the time that was even a blind squirrel can find an acorn every now and again, right? I think that was accidental swag. He just didn't know that was a thing. He just, I grew up in Varina. We just said it a little differently. Accidental swag. You guys, they're trouble. Loving this series that we're in. I, I hope that... It's touching your life as much as it's touching mine. Uh, this idea of an open heaven, we've been uh, digging around in scripture and looking at all the different ways the Bible uses this phrase, um, all the different verses in, in the Bible that you find where this, this phrase is, is, is uh, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it means so many different things in so many different situations, and we've just kind of picked one of them to focus in on, and it's the idea of God's living presence, part of open heaven in the Bible, again, it means Many things you can get all of these on our, our podcast on our website. Um, but out of the uh, big list, we've kind of drilled down on this one idea of, of having a sense of heaven being near to us and being in the living presence of God, even as many of you, I'm sure you've already felt tonight. His presence brings a sense of the nearness of heaven. It brings a clarity of thought. It brings a feeling of being empowered. We've preached through all of these in this series. It creates a sense in us of not wanting to leave. We experience God's presence. We're awakened to it. and We we want to stay there like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Last week, we talked a little bit about how sometimes open heavens are unexpected. They're sovereign moves of God, like we dug around in the text last week of Ananias. And when God spoke to him to go and pray for Saul after his road to Damascus encounter, And tonight I want to talk about open heavens that come by being positioned by principle. Meaning that, yes, there are sovereign open heavens where you're just going about your life and going about your day, and then all of a sudden you're just awakened to God's presence, and and you don't have any sense of having done something to, to, to bring it about. But there's other times in Scripture where God asks you to do something, tells you to go somewhere, or maybe it's the commands of the pathways. We're going to be talking about those a little bit tonight, and it's through your obedience that you've positioned and postured yourself, and that's why the open heaven comes. Commands are a part of the Christian experience, whether we like it or not. There are times in Scripture where God says to us, do this and don't do that. It's part of Steve's word. Come on, wasn't that a great word coming out of worship? This idea that there are times where God has to look to us and he's got to command us. He's got to direct us. And just for the record, right, that word, that's about your relationship with God. That wasn't marriage advice. So if you're driving, don't ever say to your wife, relax. We're just, right, that's, God says that to you, but you can't say that to her. I'm just putting that in there for free. Putting that in there for free. But there's times where God's got to come and he's got to tell us what he wants us to do. And oftentimes, I believe, as we're going to see tonight, it's not just because of the thing that he's asking us to do, it's because he's sending us to a place because he knows an open heaven is waiting for us there. And sometimes the difference between your life being filled with open heavens and not is directly related to your obedience to the commands that he brings. Obedience is a core principle in the kingdom of God. Listen to these verses in Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the day of Pentecost, all believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages, spiritual language, as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This is one of the most dramatic open heaven moments in scripture. And the 120 people who were there experienced it because they were in the place doing the thing that Jesus himself had told them to do. It was obedience to a command. And we know that Jesus had a ministry that lasted for about three years. and, And then as he gave his life for the sins of the world, as we sung already tonight together, there was a moment of resurrection. But that was not the moment where he ascended into heaven. There were 40 days after the resurrection of Christ where he stayed here on this earth in his glorified state, in his glorified body, and in his heavenly presence. And for 40 days, he continued to have encounters with people. In the same way that he ministered and taught and interacted with people before his death and resurrection, he did it for 40 days after. 40 days. And one of those moments at the end of the 40 days was what the Bible calls his ascension. Listen to Acts 1, 3 through 4. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked... To them about the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about that phrase tonight. It says one of these, these occasions, referring back to the 40 days, he was eating with them and he commanded them, right? There's a command that he gives. Do not leave Jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before, which we know from the study of the gospels was the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we have Jesus' death. We have his resurrection. We have 40 days of him Appearing to people, interacting with people. Our Easter message that became an unintended series, right, on the road to Emmaus was one of those post-resurrection encounters. It culminated into his ascension. 1 Corinthians 15.6 talks about a time in post-resurrection experiences where more than 500 people saw Jesus. Acts 1.9 tells us that this was the moment of his ascension. Many biblical teachers, many commentators connect those two texts together and I believe that they've got that right. That there at the end of the 40 days there were 500 followers of Christ. Believers who were gathered together that saw Christ ascend into the heavens and even in that moment he gives them commands. Look at Acts 1.15. It says, during this time when about 120 believers were gathered in one place, Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because if you read further back in the book of Acts, on the day of ascension, it says that there were more than 500 people there. But as you continue reading just a few verses later, it says there's there's only 120. Where were the other 380 people? Because when you read the text, you see, as I have seen, that Jesus gave all of them the same command that they were supposed to wait, they were supposed to stay, they weren't supposed to go anywhere that there was something incredible was going to happen that Jesus promised and he gave them instructions about what they were supposed to do and over 500 people were there. And now just a few verses later, that 500 has been whittled down to just 120 people. Now you might say, well, Fred, maybe they just weren't there on that Saturday for church. Maybe they had something to do. Maybe they had a good reason for not showing up. It's interesting here what the Holy Spirit inspires Luke to write. Look at Acts 2.1. It says, on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. All right, we're doing a little math here. Stay with me. Don't get nervous. 50 days, penta means 50, Penta cost, 50 days after Passover. Passover is where Jesus' death and resurrection occurred. The Bible's already told us that he appeared to people for 40 days and then it says on Acts 2.1 at the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days, right? So we take the 50, we subtract the 40 and we realize that there were 10 days between Jesus' ascension and where he says to them, you guys stay here, continue to gather together, the Holy Spirit is going to come. In 10 days' time, they went from 500 to 120. 10 days! Now, you and I, right, and I'm included, we go, if I had been there for the ascension, whoo, I would have waited for 10 months, maybe 10 years. Can you imagine being one of the people in a crowd of 500 that sees Jesus in his resurrected, glorified state rising up to the heavens and speaking to the crowd? We read that and we go, how how could that how, how could that five how could they even even have left that mountaintop? Five hundred to one hundred and twenty, just ten days of everyday living. For so many of us here, we've had encounters with God. We've seen Him do incredible things. We've heard stories, and you know what? For most of us, and I'm including myself, we're more like the three hundred and eighty than we are the one hundred and twenty. We get so easily derailed. We know things God has asked us to do. Many of us here tonight, we're we're here with regrets because we know that God has spoken to us. He's given us instruction. He's given us commands. He's directed us in certain ways. And then through 10 days of just everyday living, we find ourselves choosing our own way. There is a direct correlation and these verses in Acts that translate into our lives that we want to help you understand and I'm preaching to myself tonight that if we want to experience open heavens, it's not just going to become through sovereign moves of God like last week because if that's the case, you can look at that and say God might not ever choose me. And so he knows that we're subject, right, to exclude ourselves from lack of faith and doubting. So he puts texts like this in here to say it's not just through sovereign moves, it's going to be through you positioning yourself. Is that When I send you to do things, when I give you instruction, when I give you commands, if you're willing to be obedient and not let the 10 days of everyday living distract you and derail you, you're going to find yourself in the places for the open heavens that I have planned for you in this life. 120 people experienced what we now commonly refer to as Pentecost because they were obedient, because they chose to do what Jesus asked of them. Look at Luke 9, 28 to 29. Now we've dug into this encounter at great length so, we're not going to dig into the whole story because we've done that in the series, but I want to point back to it because it sets us up, I believe, to better understand why some of the people that were part of the 500 were more inclined to obey than others because some of them had been walking with Christ for a long time and their heart was conditioned to obedience. And my hope is that many of us are going to leave here tonight with a heart that's conditioned to obey. Come on, that none of us are going to leave here the same way we came. Luke 9, 28, 29 said about eight days later. Now what's that referring to? It's talking about eight days after Peter's great declaration when Jesus says, who do people say that I am, right? And Peter makes the declaration that you're the Messiah, the son of God. And this is where Jesus talks about he's going to build the church. It came on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000 and that came on the heels of him sending the disciples out, which we're going to read about that tonight too. Eight days later. Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Now, again, we've broken down this text in this series, the Mount of Transfiguration. This is an open heaven moment. Peter, James, and John were there because Jesus invited them to go. Jesus said, hey, why don't you guys come with me? They had an opportunity, like many of us have an opportunity, when Jesus invites us to go places. Can I just tell you that every invitation that Jesus gives, it's also a command. He's just being nice about it. It's the same way as a parent, we invite our children to do their chores. We invite them to cut the grass. We invite them to take out the trash because we're just being nice. If you're a teenager, your parents are not giving you invitations, right? These are commands. Jesus, he's inter- he's, what he's saying to them, you guys need to come with me. And you know what they did? They went. Because they understood that obedience leads us to incredible encounters. And they had one of the most incredible encounters of their lives that day. They went that day because they had been walking with Christ for some time. And and they weren't just believers anymore. They were becoming disciples. They, They weren't just people who believed in who Jesus was. They were becoming people who wanted to be like him. The world's full of believers, full of people that are going to go to heaven because they've made a profession of faith in Christ and a vow of devotion to him. But it doesn't mean that we're all disciples along the way. Luke 5.16 tells us that there were times where Jesus would withdraw to pray by himself. Luke nine one tells us that there was a moment where Jesus brought the disciples together, prayed over them, and sent them out to minister, just like he ministered. And then you get to Luke twenty eight and twenty nine, and you see where he invites them to go with them, just the three, not the other, and they did. Now, each one of these is an interesting study in and of itself, and if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard sermons about each of those three, and those are great messages, and those are great verses, and they give us great truths. But when you put them together, I I think that you find something incredible. Because what you find is that there is a pattern of Jesus' mentoring or discipleship of his followers, and it's a follow me, go from me, come with me. And the reason why these three are important is because Jesus is conditioning their hearts to obedience. When he goes off to himself to pray, you might say, well, Fred, he doesn't ask them to follow. I know, but it's still a follow me moment because that's what discipleship is about. We get that from 1 Corinthians 11.1, which is the springboard of our discipleship model, which we call praxis, where Paul writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, imitate me as I imitate Christ or follow me as I follow Christ. So much of Jesus' ministry and his follow me isn't always just a verbal follow me. Sometimes his follow me is through the example of how he lives. And so he goes off to pray. It's a follow me moment because he's saying to them, this needs to be a regular part of your life. You too, like me, need to find times where you get away from everything and just spend time alone with your Father. It's a follow me moment. Luke 9 is more pronounced because he tells them to go. and Luke 9, 28, 29, again, is more pronounced because he invites some to come. He's conditioning their hearts for obedience. It's interesting, too, that not all of the disciples experienced the Mount of Transfiguration, but all of their hearts were being conditioned for obedience because God intended all of them to be in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. You see, sometimes the command that he's giving you is not because your open heaven is going to be there. It's because he's conditioning your heart so at some point in your future, when a command is coming that he knows you're not yet ready to obey, he's preparing your heart so obedience will come when it counts, when the open heaven is ready. If he had not conditioned those disciples' hearts along the way, I dare say that that 500 would have whittled down to a lot less than 120. But the 120 who were there, they knew that when Jesus tells us to do something, he's got something incredible waiting for us. I get it. Just like Steve was sharing in his wrap-up, there's times where God asks things of us and we're not sure he knows what he's talking about, right? There's times where he says, and we feel like, I think you got the wrong person, it's like, I think this is a word for somebody else, God. Just tell me who it's for. I'll, be, I'll, I'll go find them. No, no, it's for you. It's for you. God in his sovereignty has all of our days worked out. And it's the 10 days in every day that pull us and push us and derail us and redirect us. Sometimes it's spiritual in nature, but sometimes it's just the experience of humanity, this side of heaven. And we feel a little bit like bumper cars bouncing back and forth. But my encouragement to all of us tonight is that if there are commands that you understand, live up to the truth that you know, and those things will guide you through your days so you don't become a part of the 380, you stay a part of the 120, and every encounter that God has for you, you won't miss out. He was training them in the culture of the kingdom of heaven. He was training them in the culture of the kingdom of God. The Bible uses those phrases interchangeably, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. There's a culture to the kingdom of God. There's a culture to God's family are values, there's certain ways that he wants us to live. Everything about Christianity isn't just about moral boundaries, although that's a big part of it. It's also about virtue. It's about certain practices. It's about ways that God wants us to live, not just so we don't do the things that we're not supposed to do, but it's so we'll do the things that we are supposed to do, so the virtues of Christ can form in us, so we can begin to fulfill the destiny that God has for us every person here has a destiny and a purpose that was created by God and you're never going to walk in that destiny until you're fully ready to embrace his grace and his truth John 1:14 says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory speaking of Jesus glory as the only begotten from the father listen to what John writes here full of grace and truth we got to have both Because Jesus is both. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't just say that he was full of grace, and he doesn't just say that he was full of truth. He's full of both. This word grace is charis, and the Greek word for truth here is althea. Jesus is fully charis, he's fully althea, he's fully grace, and he's fully truth. Grace governs my relationship with God, truth governs my life in his kingdom. My life as a child of God is directed by love, but my life in his kingdom is directed by principles. The reason why the Holy Spirit inspires John to describe Christ as being both full of Charis and Althea is because the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, wants us to understand as the children of God, as disciples of Christ, that the only way we're going to fulfill our destiny and become the people that he's called and created us to be, which is all about getting us ready for the heaven that's to come. Come on, but that's another sermon for another time. This life is about getting us ready for the one that's up there. Heaven's a place of activity. Heaven is a place of purpose. He created you because he has a job for you there. We talk so much about finding, right, our calling here. And that's important. But can we just agree that whatever your calling is here, it's, it, this, is, this is training for the calling that's there that's going to last a lifetime. Grace and truth. You know, there's a lot of churches that they treat John 1.14 as if it's only about grace. And then there are a lot of churches that treat John 1.14 as if it's only about truth. And those churches either are a place of permissiveness or a place of legalism. But when you begin to put both of those together, it becomes a place of liberty, a place of freedom. As you read through the Old Testament, is it just me or have you ever had the thought that it seems a little bit unfair. That God only picked one nation. Why would he do that? I mean, come on, let's just, right? Have you ever had that thought? It doesn't really seem fair to the Ammonites or the Moabites or any of the other rites that are in the Old Testament. Why didn't he pick them? He picked the Israelites. You cannot read through the Old Testament and not have an incredible feeling of exclusivity. And sometimes it just, it makes me feel uncomfortable because it just doesn't seem fair. It seems like God says, just you and nobody else. Why would he do that? I believe that he did it because he's trying to actually create the perfect picture of grace. It seems a little paradoxical, doesn't it? But that's exactly what he's trying to do. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to what the New Testament is going to come. He wants you and I to understand through the prophetic image of a nation that people who became a part of that nation, it was through no act or choice of their own. People who were born an Israelite did not have a say in the matter. It's because two other people got married, Kenny and Sarah. Just saying. Two people, they have a say They find each other, they fall in love, they get married and and then their family begins to grow. As their family begins to grow, like your children, as your family began to grow, they didn't get to pick the family they were gonna be a part of. They didn't. And the reason why I believe that God gives this incredible picture through Israel is that he's trying to help us understand what grace looks like. Is that you don't deserve it. You're born into it. And it's a gift that God gives. And there's nothing that you could ever do to earn it. People did not earn the right to be an Israelite. They were born into it. People weren't interviewed, people weren't given a test or an exam. They were born into a nation. When you get into the New Testament, you have this incredible picture that God begins to paint for us about grace. He talks about how when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that we are the bride of Christ. And when you make a vow of devotion to him, in John chapter 3, he gives this imagery of a child being born. When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you're born again. Your spiritual life comes alive for the first time. And God wants us to understand what happens to us through the prophetic picture of Israel that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ and you become the bride of Christ, that through that covenant relationship, your spiritual life is created and you've done nothing to earn that. It's all out of the grace of Christ that was purchased on the cross. You see, he starts with exclusivity in the Old Testament because he's trying to help you understand the inclusivity of Christianity in the new. And that grace is completely and totally undeserved. If you're here tonight and you're a part of God's family, Jesus did everything to make that possible. When you made that vow of devotion to Christ, you became a part of his family. In the same way that someone was born into Israel then, we are born into the family of God now. But this is where things get sideways for too many people. They take that revelation of grace, they take that understanding of being born into the family of God because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and then they begin to live the rest of their lives through the lens of grace, and they never pick up truth. Grace governs my relationship with God, but truth governs my experience in his kingdom. Grace covers everything. You might have different theological beliefs than mine. I'm okay with that. I don't think you can sin your way out of the grace of God. I think you can renounce your faith. That's another sermon for another time. I don't think you can sin your way out of it. I think God's grace is too big for that. But you can experience a living hell in his kingdom in the midst of all of that grace because you turn your nose up at truth all the days of your life. He doesn't bring us into his family through grace just for you to suffer through until you get to heaven. He wants you to begin to understand the Althea of Christianity, not just the Chaos of Christianity, so that you can begin to walk in your purpose. Accomplish everything that God's created you to accomplish and get ready for the heaven that's to come. This idea of the kingdom of God, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, it appears 65 times in the New Testament. It's Jesus' most common introduction to his parables. That's curious, isn't it? So many of his parables start the kingdom of heaven is like unto, the kingdom of God is like unto. Why is that? It's because he wants us to understand that, yes, grace governs our relationship with the Father, but it's truth that determines our experience and our life in the kingdom. Once I'm born into the family, I am a part of the kingdom, and his kingdom is governed by principles. So three weeks ago, I read you these verses, and now we're finally working our way back around. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. I shared with you then, I'm going to say it again, that this verse has has been misused so often because it's given primarily as a reason for giving and that truth is present, but that secondary, primary is the open heaven. Now listen to this, Malachi 3 through 12. Should people cheat God that you've cheated me? But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You cheated me in tithes and offerings due to me. You're under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. This is interesting, isn't it? Here it is. We have both the presence of grace and truth, even in the Old Testament. God's saying, You're my children, you're my family, but your life is a mess because you're not being obedient to the truth that you know. You're under a curse, he says. Your whole nation. Then he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heaven's army, I will, listen, open up the windows of heaven and open heaven. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't even have enough room to take it in. Try it, he says, put me to the test. And then he goes on to say, your crops will be abundant and I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed. For your lands will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Malachi 3, 8 through 12 is about God saying to you and saying to me that if you give yourself to the truths of the principles of the kingdom of God, there are open heavens that are waiting for you in this life. If your life is lacking open heaven moments, then the first question you should ask yourself is this, is my life walking in the pathways that position me under the open heavens God has waiting for me? I'm gonna say it again. Grace and grace alone keeps us in relationship with God, but it's principles that govern my my life in his kingdom and position me for open heavens. If you're visiting us, we give, you, we give this book away. We get, it's free for you. Find someone in a blue shirt. Ask them for that little green book that has that weird word on the front of it, Praxis. Because in here we talk about the one invitation and the six commands and the 12 pathways and the 24 virtues. This is what discipleship looks like. This is how discipleship is walked out every day of your life. But right at the middle, right at the middle of this model are six commands. And those six commands are obeyed by giving yourself to these 12 pathways. It is the doing of our faith. These things have nothing to do with you being a child of God. But it has everything to do with your life in his kingdom. Grace was purchased by Jesus on the cross for all who are willing to accept the free gift that he offers. That's the gospel. But once the gospel has been given to us, you have a choice that you need to make. Are you willing to give yourself in obedience to the commands of Christ all the days of your life? You're still going to get into heaven because you're one of his children. But are you going to live your life as the 380? Are you going to live your life as the 120? I want to be part of the 120. I want to be part of the people that experience the open heavens. I want to be part of the people that find themselves in Acts chapter two, even in this life in 2018 and beyond because as a church, we're obedient to the things that God puts in front of us. Ecclesiastes 6.10. My reading through the Bible in a year plan, I'm doing the historical plan and it's had me in Ecclesiastes recently, right? You can only read a little bit of this at a time. Whew! Right? But then there are parts of Ecclesiastes that are some of the richest revelations in all of scripture. Listen to this in 6.10. It says, everything has already been decided. (laughs) Everything's been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. That's you and me. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. It just kind of sets us free, doesn't it? You have a destiny. You have a purpose. God created you for a reason. And that reason in this life is to get you ready for what he's got for you in the eternity that is to come. And at some point, all of us, we've just got to say, God, I trust you. I trust your plan over my life. And I trust that your commands are going to get me there even when I don't want to do it, even when I don't understand even when I'm doubting, even when I'm arguing, even when I'm going kicking and screaming, even when I'm going with my lips stuck out and my arms folded over. I want to trust in your purpose over my life. This experience, this side of the capital H heaven, it's about principles and truths. It's an Althea journey with the carous relationship with our creator. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. I wanna change gears a little bit as, as they come back up. And I just, I just, I just wanna boast on one of the ministries in this church, if I can. All the people that you see in blue shirts week in and week out. Can you just say thank you to them? Come on. I love this team for lots of reasons, but one of them is because of the reason they're involved in what they do. They are not here to serve for an event. They're here to prepare for an encounter. They do what they do week in and week out so you can experience God's presence, so you can walk into an open heaven. It's why they do what they do. We talk all the time about this idea of churches that set up and tear down. This, we, the, the modern world didn't create that. Just read about the Israelites. They were setting up and tearing down for a long time. Tabernacles and, and temples, right? There was lots of work to be done to set it up, tear it down. Set it up, tear it down. Set it up, tear it down. Do that for a couple of million people for church. And and we like to, when when, when people come to be part of that ministry through our orientation every now and again, we take them to the texts that talk about who was assigned to that work. See, they would go out and find people that weren't Israelites, that were just neighboring villages, and they would make them do the grunt work. No, that's not true. That's That's not how it worked. It was the priests who were assigned the responsibility for the setting up and the tearing down of the tabernacle. The tent of Meaning. Why? Because it's sacred. Why is it sacred? Because those are the places that people come to, to have an encounter. with You can have an encounter with God anywhere you want, but you know just as well as I do, there's something about walking into a place like this that gives your heart a sense of hope that I'm going to find Jesus there. People in blue shirts, they don't do what they're doing for an event It's not the grunt work of this church. It's the priestly work of this church. So people can have an encounter with the living God. Stand with me. Father, I pray for every person that's here tonight who's never had a sense of being in an open heaven. I pray for every person that's here tonight that's never had a sense of being awakened to your presence. Who's never had that sense of, I want to stay here for a few minutes longer. Who's never had that sense of a supernatural clarity of thought. Who's never had that that sense of being supernaturally empowered to go back out and, and to do the things that you've called them to do. And for some of them, we know there's hard things waiting for them. After this service, oh God, for the person that's never experienced your open, and I pray that you would fill their tank up tonight. Father, we thank you for your grace, but we also thank you for your truth. And find in us a heart that always says to you, yes and amen. In Jesus' name, come on in, everybody. said together, amen. Let's worship together.